The ETF Edge podcast is sponsored by Invesco QQQ, supporting the innovators changing the world. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Welcome to ETF Edge, the podcast. If you're looking to learn the latest insights on all things exchange-traded funds, you are in the right place. Every week, we're bringing you interviews, market analysis, and breaking down what it means for investors. I'm your host, Bob Pisani. As investors look to navigate the choppy market landscape, Today on the show, we'll delve into so-called buffer ETFs. These are ETFs specifically designed to cushion the blow against the downside while also having potential gains. It's become an increasingly popular strategy. We'll break down what it all means with the man who runs Innovator ETFs. They're a pioneer in that buffered products business. Here's my conversation with Graham Day, the CIO of Innovator ETFs, along with Todd Sohn. He's the ETF and technical strategist at Strategus Securities. That's a Baird company. Graham, these uh, products that allow investors to stay in the market but provide downside protection, they were big hits last year. But I want to, we got to educate the viewers about this. Just briefly explain how these buffered products work. Yeah, it's a great question, Bob. And really at the heart of these products, you get equity exposure. And in exchange for an upside cap, you receive a known level a built-in buffer uh, to hedge against downside losses. That's really it. You're trading unlimited upside in exchange for that known level of built-in buffers against loss. And again, with equities dropping in 2022, bonds dropping in 2022, it's all about risk management today. That's what these products offer. And it, it, we just put up a screen, PNOV. This is one of the, one of the uh, buffer products. They protect against the first 15% of losses. There are other ones that, that you provide that are, that are out there. But what, what happens the first 15%? You, you have no loss up to that. And what happens after that? So very simple. Like you said, Bob, downside buffer of 15% against the first 15% of losses. If the market were to drop 16% over a one-year period, you'd be buffered against the first 15% of losses and then take on that last 1% of downside. So market's down 16, you'd be down 1% with the power buffer ETF. Okay, now we're going to talk about some other variations on this, but I want to bring you in, uh, Todd. Uh, these products, they, they, they work great in an up market, or excuse me, in a down market or a sideways market, right. but you do give up some upside here if you're in an up market. So this is not some kind of like magic bullet protection against virtually everything. Of, of course, there's risks with any investment, and these, if the market were to go on a tear here, a 2021, a 2017, 2013 type year, you're going to lose it on the upside now. The counter to that, though, would be if you think about the last five years when these products launched, we had a 20% correction in 4Q 2018. We had the COVID crash. And then we had last year, which we were down some 20% at one point. That has been a fantastic environment for the buffered ETFs and why they exist. So I, I, I get the idea that you may miss the upside. But if you're close to retirement, if you're a novice investor that may be scared of getting into the markets, given what's going on these last few years, these are a decent starting point, despite them using options, which may be a little bit confusing. It makes absolute sense to me if you're an older investor and you still want to stay in the market. You don't want to throw your money into cash or bonds or something like that. You have, want to stay in, but you're getting close to retirement or you're in retirement and you want some protection. I, these products make a lot of sense. And look at the money coming in. There's been some very successful products in this, in this space. J.P. Morgan's uh, Jeppy. 
$23 billion in assets. That's a huge ETF that's out there. Uh, so you have low volatility stocks with that that overlay uh, covered call options, essentially. Uh, I see BlackRock. We mentioned last week BlackRock is getting into this buffer ETF game. They just filed for two buffer defined uh, outcome ETFs um, aiming right. to cushion against the downside while also capping potential gains. So this is in the air. Maybe BlackRock's a little late to the party. But I, I think BlackRock filing for these adds credence to the category, right? You're talking about the biggest issuer stepping in, right? That's more competition for Innovator, but it definitely lends a hand to saying this is for real. And then, you know, the, the other part of it, I think covered call, buffer ETFs, you can make the case that this is a new innovation, right? Innovation was the hot product a few years ago. Everyone filed, followed Kathy Wood and her team. And now you're seeing covered call type strategies, option related strategies to get that income through the yeah. equity market now. Uh, uh, Graham, uh, maybe we can um, have a little bit more about the products that you offer. So I, I had uh, Bruce Bond on last year talking about uh, the BALT, uh, the Innovator Defined Wealth Shield, which tracks of return the S&P 500 to a cap. Explain that to us briefly. There's a, a, a little bit of a bewildering variety of choices here that, you, that you're introducing to investors. Uh, explain how this one works, the BALT. Well, Bob, our, our goal is to provide and equip advisors with an array of tools that can help them achieve their clients' you know, return and risk objectives. Vault is, is a little different than our typical buffer ETFs. Vault provides a, an approximate 20% buffer every three months against the equity markets um, and has the upside potential attached to that as well. And what we've seen is because every time the market has corrected, the 20% buffer of bulk has really guarded investors against losses. And then when the market has had some upside recovery, investors have been able to participate in those gains. And so what we've had since we launched this product about two years ago is bulk has actually generated positive total returns despite the equity market's falling over that same time frame. So BALT is our most conservative defined outcome ETF, and it also has a shortened outcome period. And we find advisors using this as an easy way to tiptoe into the defined outcome space. Yeah. Now you've got a new product that's launched last week, the barrier ETF. So you've, you've got this barrier ETF product line. This one seeks to provide high income and a, a barrier against losses over a certain time period. Ex explain how these products work, because they, they just came out last week, right? That's right. That's right. So we're, we're really excited about these products, Bob, because what we've sought to do here at Innovator since 2017 is to bring payoffs and, and, and payoff structures that have only been available uh, in structured notes or insurance wrappers. We think bringing them in the ETF wrapper has a tremendous amount of value add for advisors and their clients. And so what barrier ETFs do is they're very similar to buffer ETFs. You have a known level of income uh, that would be distributed over a one-year outcome period, and you also have known levels of risk management that are also built into the product. And so you can see here 10, 20, 30, and 40% barriers against losses right. uh, to the equity markets. It's a way for investors to diversify their income streams, take some credit risk off the table, take some interest rate risk off the table. 2022 is ugly for bonds. Advisors, investors, they're looking for ways to diversify. 
So let, let me put up one of these. The a, a, put up APRJ for me. I, I believe that's the 10% product. So here, the market, uh, APRJ, symbol here, the, the market, there, there it is. Uh, the, we'd have to go down, no, that's the 30, I'm sorry, but the APRJ, you get the point. The, the market would have to go down 30% to lose anything, but it pays an income over the year in quarterly payments. Is that correct? That's right. So APRJ has an income distribution rate around uh, 7.5%. And so you're right, Bob, if the market does not fall below that 30% barrier threshold, so over the next one year, if the equity markets don't fall more than 30%, you would essentially receive your principal at the end of the outcome period and the quarterly coupon payments. And so these are different. They don't need the equity markets to have positive returns in order for you to, to generate positive returns. If the market it, breaches that barrier, then you right. are down in line with the market. But the key is you will always receive those quarterly distribution right. payments. And right. again, following from what right. we've done in the structured note world. Right, I, I want, to, want you to explain the difference here between the barrier and the buffer products, because you just said something important there. On that 30 year we just put up, and on the, the, the tenure, if, if you drop more than 10%, if you drop 11% on the, on the, on the 10% product, you're, you then breach that, right? You're down 11%. So in the buffer products, it's different, right? It's important for people to understand what you're getting here. That's right. And Bob, it's all about the amount of risk that you're willing to take. And, and so with the buffers, if you were down, if the market was down 11%, then a buffer investment would be down uh, just 1% if you had a 10% buffer. With the barriers, you're buffered or you're protected against the first 10% of losses. But then if the market falls below that barrier, you're down 11%, but you still get the distribution rate. So if the distribution rate was 10% with the barrier, then on a total return basis, you'd only be down 1%. But again, buffers have more protection in place than barriers. And so you do not get the same levels of income that you can with the barriers. Barriers are what we have seen in the structured note space for a long period of time. It's what advisors are used to seeing. That's what we're doing is bringing it and making it available in the ETF no, wrapper. The, 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 it, I'm thank you for making the distinction there between the two, but it's a little bewildering the variety of uh, offerings here. H how are you seeing advisors use these products right now? What are they doing with these products? Yeah, so we just launched them, Bob. But what we're seeing is advisors that have maybe used structured notes in the past and, and yield focused notes and using these ETFs because the ETF wrapper streamlines uh, the operational efficiencies in their practice. It removes credit risk. There's daily liquidity, a uh, lot of benefits that the ETF wrapper provides. But again, it's looking at what happened in 2022. And, and income is very important for advisors, but so is risk management. And when you have investment-grade corporate bonds losing 18 19% on a total return basis in 2022, advisors are realizing that bonds aren't the safe haven that many thought they would be. Yeah. And so if you compare these with the fixed income, we think that that offers a tremendous yeah. amount of diversification benefits. It's, it's you know, um, 
Todd, it's, everything he's saying makes sense, but it's a kind of a mm -hmm. bewildering amount of products uh, and confusing and hard to explain to people. Definitely. Um, what do you, what, you give advice out to clients on the ETFs. That's your job. What do you tell people about these kinds of products? I, I think the, the end goal, <coughs> it makes sense, right? This is, it's defined. People like the, the brand name defined outcome, right? That makes sense. But an innovator, I think, does a great job on their website of explaining you need to make sure that you are involved on the first day of the reset, whether it's January, April, May, whatever it might be. And then also, you know, don't get too scared of the word option. I know the pros know what's going on here, but if you're a novice investor, understand that they're not doing anything too crazy, right? If that, if that was the case, I don't think these products would be gathering assets too much. Um, and I would, what I also think is really interesting from their product set, you have it on the S&P, but they have also released MSCI uh, EM, small caps, NASDAQ 100. So you're getting a great product set from Innovator, and I'd be curious as ETFs continue to grow and the options markets on other funds deepens, if they'll add more suites out there. Yeah. Well, the answer is if the money comes in, yeah. they, they will. Um, Graham, I know these uh, buffered ETFs have gathered assets, and congratulations on the success of them, but they are difficult to understand. Now, the regulators have voiced some alarm over these kinds of complex ETFs. That, that's a word uh, Gary Gensler used uh, in, in May of last year. Uh, Gensler, who's the chairman of the SEC, warned that, uh, and I'm quoting from him here, they, these complex ETFs could pose risks even to sophisticated investors and can potentially create system-wide risks by operating in un unanticipated ways when markets experience volatility or stress conditions. Is, is there any validity to these concerns? How do you respond to those comments? And again, this was done May of last year. Well, Bob, when we talk to advisors and, and, and uh, illustrate how these ETFs are constructed, they're actually taken aback by how simple the construction is. With the buffer ETFs, we're holding a portfolio of four to five options on the S&P 500 ETF, on the NASDAQ 100 ETF. And once those options are bought, the portfolio is fixed for the remainder of the outcome period. We are not touching uh, any of the options. That's what gives the defined outcome for investors. And so we think it's somewhat ironic that these products, which we've had in the market for five years, they've delivered exactly what they said they were going to do. And when you look at the down markets, the buffer ETFs have done what they should. They've buffered investors against downside losses. These are risk management tools. These aren't trading tools. These are for advisors to put in, in a strategic allocation, whether it's on the equity side, whether they're underweight fixed income, they can use these products uh, in that sleeve as well. And so, again, yes, they're options, and you can dig into them if you want, but at the end of the day, these are very simple. Basket of four or five yeah. options, they're set for the entirety of the outcome period. We don't actively manage the por portfolio at all. Yeah, you know, the uh, I have differences of opinion with Gary Gensler, but there have been concerns voiced about complex products, and not, I don't just mean buffered products or defined outcome, but leverage at inverse ETFs, for example. Uh, do any of these, should there be any regulation? There are some people who argue that these kinds of complex ETFs should actually be separate from you know, plain vanilla ETFs, for example, yeah. because of potential risks around them. Are there potential risks? Do you, does this make any, any sense, or is Gensler just... Uh, sort of going overboard on this. I, I don't necessarily think overboard, but I do believe 
some of these products need better labeling, whether that's through brokerage sites or whatnot, just understand that if you're buying a leveraged product, it resets every day. And so just because the S&P goes up 30 in yeah. one year, doesn't mean you're gonna get triple that return. Yeah. Uh, they are more expensive. They, if they're an ETN, you know, they can be taxed differently. Yeah. So I, I do believe something needs to be done rather than calling ETFs yeah. that you'd find in a Vanguard the, fund. The average viewer cannot wrap their head around the daily reset. I mean, yeah. it literally makes your head explode when you try to explain a daily reset to people. And, and, and then you're, wait a minute, I'm not getting three times inverse oil ETF. It's not, if I hold it for a month, I don't get three times. It depends on what's happening on a daily basis. And that, it, and that it is It literally why makes their head explode. Yeah, that's exactly why something so complex, I think, does need a layer of additional scrutiny. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you, you do something a little unusual. You provide ETF research to institutions. This guy is one of the few that does this out here. Um, why isn't there more traditional institutional research for ETFs? I mean, everyone is obsessed with macro research, but nobody's covering ETFs. And strategists, you're one of the few ones that are actually in this, that space. This was the idea behind why we wanted to produce this content for our clients. and. I think it's a, maybe a historical bias. We've been so used to macro research and single stock research. Yeah. Right? It buys hell's hold on all these securities that are out there. And ETFs have kind of just been there on the side as looked at as passive investments, cheap, transparent, whatnot. And I don't think they've gotten the love that they should given how important they are now as building blocks for the investment community. The right. other argument could be made that there's simply too many that do the same thing. Right. I know we talked about dividend ETFs. There's but isn't that an opportunity for an institutional advisor to explain that and Ab say, here's oh. what we're telling people to use and why? Absolutely. It mean, seems obvious. All the products, the, the, uh, the opportunity here is to look at all the products that are out there that have similar labels and understand what the ingredients are in each of those funds. I think that's where the opportunity is. For I, I have research. made it very clear my, my unhappiness with the analyst community. I think the quality of sell-side research has been going steadily down for 20 years. And it's very alarming because there are companies that desperately, small cap companies, that desperately need coverage, don't have it. Yeah. Um, and we need more. Uh, and yet we can't figure out a way to pay analysts. Uh, Europe has basically eliminated soft dollars, can't pay them. We don't know how to pay them anymore. Uh, and so there's more need. There's less quality and higher need. And this seems an obvious gap here, and I don't know how to fill that gap. It's very frustrating for me. That's something we're trying to solve, too. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I know that some of our clients do appreciate the ETF work because they're part of their core portfolios and their clients' portfolios. And then yeah. there are others who still like to play single stocks. Yeah. And that can continue to go on. Graham, well, what's, uh, what's in the future here? Uh, money's still coming in. At least I see money coming in. Uh, you just launched this whole new line here. Um, what, what else exists out there in the world? Uh, of, uh, of defined outcome ETFs? Well, I think we're just getting started, Bob. Uh, again, this is a space that's been dominated by the, the structured note and the insurance world and making it available in the ETF wrapper for the first time. Back in 2008, now we have the first income-focused defined outcome ETF. And so we think we're just getting started. We're in the early innings uh, of the opportunity here. And again, this is the environment where investors are wary of bonds. Is the Fed going to keep hiking? They're worried about equity markets continuing to decline. The buffer ETFs are in that sweet spot. Uh, PAPR gives you 15% of the upside uh, to the market, a 15% downside buffer. Not a lot of advisors we're talking with think the market's going to go up more than 15. They're still cautious, but they want to stay invested. They want to time the market. 
All right. I appreciate the help uh, and very interesting discussion. Thank you for joining us. Now it's time to round out the conversation with some analysis and perspective to help you better understand ETFs. This is the Markets 102 portion of the podcast. We continue in the conversation with Todd Sohn from Strategus Securities. That is a Baird company. Todd, um, I just want to talk about the inflows this year because it's been a little unusual. Yeah. Uh, we have sluggish, I think, is the way to define it. Um, we've had outflows from U.S. equities, but we've had some significant inflows into international equities. Uh, we've had outflows from corporate and high yield funds, but we've had huge inflows into treasuries. Um, overall, flows are a little lower than last year. Make, make sense of this all for us. What so, does this mean? So for U.S., I'd boil it down to this is what happens when you raise rates 500 basis points in a year. Um, that is a huge change that we've been used to. And I think that has left investors uh, very skittish, as you say, um, perhaps nervous. And where do we go from here? Is the Fed done hiking, perhaps? Are we going into a recession? Maybe, maybe not. And I think that you're being reflected in the flows there. Um, and then the other part of this, leading, international, leading into international, valuations have always been attractive there. And you also don't have the concentration risk that's brewing again within U.S. equities. Apple and Microsoft are 13% of the index. The top five names are almost a quarter of the index again back like in 2021. So I think there's some comfort with international. You get a little bit more diversification, a little less tech if you're concerned about that, uh, and maybe a little bit more clarity on where their central banks stand versus ours. And, well, first of all, it's nice to see some inflows into international. I mean, it's yeah. been a horrible underperformer for a decade. You know, whatever happened to diversification, for crying out loud, it makes you wonder, you know, when people talk eventually about reversion to the mean. Um, you know, if, if you're supposed to be holding international uh, and you believe that there are companies outside the United States that you don't capture the full thing just by owning the S&P 500. Right. Uh, it's been a pretty disappointing decade. Absolutely. And that's been a cause of uh, constituency issues, right? U.S. is all tech and growth. Internationals, value, banks, staples, not really the most uh, productive assets over the last decade. But maybe that's changing. Uh, we'll see, obviously. But I think at least to start the year and over the last few months, investors have been a little bit more comfortable with that exposure rather than the big cap tech exposures. So bond inflows have been, again, also strange. Uh, generally, outflows from high yield, outflows from corporate. This seems to be suggesting to me that people are a little concerned about about the situation with corporate America. Right. Um, and yet huge inflows into treasuries. I keep joking. My, I've made my, my mother the butt of many jokes in the last month because she called from her bank, literally saying, my God, I was going to roll a a CD over a one-year CD. They're offering me 4%. I haven't seen that in years, Robert. This is fantastic. <laughs> I'm thinking of pulling more money out of my account, my savings account, and buying two-year treasuries or, or it's CDs. And I said to her, Mom, you're, this is why the banks are down a little bit, because they're worried they're going to have to pay more for your deposit and it's going to hurt their, their profitability. And she said, Robert, I could care less about the profitability of the banks. I got 0.3% for years. The, and so now my mother's become a bond maven. She's waiting to roll over her CD that way because she thought she was going to get more if she waited another week. That's, when your mother calls about that, that's a sign of a yield top. I think I tend to agree with you there in terms of topping yields. Yeah. Now, just to rewind on the corporate and high yield, I think that's consistent with the 
outflows from U.S. equities, very skittish attitudes, yeah. not reseeking. And then with bonds, the, I mean, when was the last time money markets were the topic of the day or cash-like ETFs? We haven't talked about these things in years, and so, in, in some cases since they've existed. Um, and th- this is kind of what happens when you go from a decade of 0% interest rates yeah. to 4 to 5% very quickly. It's like putting a jar of M&Ms in front of a three-year-old kid. They just go wild. Now, the toppy part of yields, I think a l- there's a little bit of a rush here because investors are perhaps worried about the recession aspect. And so that may also be pushing down yields. Everyone wants to get that last grasp of 4% or, or whatnot, such as uh, what your mother was saying. But um, I would suspect these continue, especially as equities are still in a is it a new bull market? Is it not a new bull market type of environment? Um, whether this becomes two offsides down the line, we'll see. You know, similar to other hot categories over the last few years. Um, but everyone is just loving that they can get 4% yield on cash-like funds and sit there and, and be happy. So a year from now, the, 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 the one year is between 4 and 5%. Let's just play it wide. Is it your best bet that yields will be lower or higher one year from now? I'm inclined to say lower. I think they've had an excellent run, um, but now you're getting to the point where you're at levels not seen in a couple of decades. And then, the, again, the recession aspect, I think, is scaring a lot of investors. So I'm inclined to just think lower. I think folks are very happy with the risk reward you're getting from treasuries. My mother got the yield top. She actually did. <laughs> I got I to hand it to her. Uh, thank you very much for talking to us. Uh, Todd Sohn is the ETF and technical strategist at Strategic Securities. And that is our ETF Ed podcast for the week. And thank you for listening. Invesco QQQ believes new innovations create new opportunities. Become an agent of innovation. Invesco QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc.